6 a.m. on the West Coast, 9 a.m. on the East Coast of America. Hello, America. <laughs> 2 p.m. in London, England, 7.30 in Mumbai, India. Hello to our friends listening in mostly on the podcast in Mumbai and all over India. And it is 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. In Malaysia, it's 19.24. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. That's the name of the show. It just has to do with the fact that this is all anybody ever sees of us, although that's changing these days. I'm still working from home, by the way, uh, for the most part. In fact, we just had a uh, bit of a COVID thing in our office, so a lot of our staff is currently dealing with that. I, however... I'm safe at home, thankfully. So <laughs> it's a uh, it's a live broadcast once again, and we have such a strange collection of crap tonight. Every now and then, we don't have one big thing; we just have a bunch of little weird stuff. This is one of those bunch of little weird stuff shows, so be prepared. Uh, the headline tonight is: When you're dead, are you dead? I'll get to that coming up. We're live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch.tv, and Rumble.com. Wherever you are watching, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button or follow or wherever it is. Just click on it. It's free and doesn't cost you a dime, and it really does help the show out a lot, especially Rumble and YouTube. Those are the two places we really encourage you to watch us over there and also give us a subscribe or a follow. Thank you. Um, yeah, we got uh, lots going on tonight, and uh, you know what? Before we get to it, I'm not going to be talking about the Ukraine, because we don't do that, do that kind of stuff on the show. So if you're looking for some Ukraine thing, it's another show. Um, but I did at least want to just start this off. Darren uh, Chow, our dear friend, uh, shared this. And it really says a lot because I see all kinds of people posting all kinds of, oh, it's World War III and all that stuff. Millennials and Zoomers who are dealing with your first bout of World War III panic, go find yourself a Gen X friend or a boomer like me, and they'll see you through it. We spent the entirety of our childhoods preparing for nuclear war alone eating Pop-Tarts, cold, from the tinfoil package. So, there you go. We got you. <laughs> very nice. And very well said. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that, Darren. <laughs> I love it. All right, it's time for the update. Miko Update. Mickey, Mickey, Miko Update. Yeah. She's great, doing wonderful. We had a nice walk tonight. Uh, she's been eating like crazy. She eats three meals a day now. Now, we don't give her a lot, but she's hungry a lot. So the way I look at it, if she's hungry, we'll feed her. And she's doing really well. I just This is kind of a little personal, but it's on my Facebook page. So what the hell? This is her and me. In bed. Actually, she was asleep. And then when my other half went to take the picture, she woke up. But it was a nice sleeping together picture. So, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's our little girl. She's doing well. However, for the first time, she just got through with her heat, her, her cycle. And uh, we were told by the vet uh, that she should not be showered or bathed during her heat cycle because the possibility of infection and all that stuff. So better safe than sorry. She is over her heat cycle. It is finished. And, uh, well, um, she's now started the shedding. <laughs> Was it always something with this little girl? But, uh, yeah, she, I knew it when we got done with her bath and we were blowing her dry and, and getting her towel dried and stuff. I could tell by the way her fur looked that she was due. And yeah, it started again. Shiba Inus, if you didn't know, have what's called a blow, usually about twice a year, where they shed like the worst winter snow. St Let me show you. I got a great video. This is not Miko, but this is a Shiba Inu, and this will give you some idea 
as to exactly what it... <laughs> Look at that. Now, Miko's not this bad. She's never gotten this bad. But this is... Look at that. If you're, what, if you're listening to the podcast, you got to check out the video. I think I put the link to this video in our, in our show notes. It's the description down below. But look at that. That is insane. The amount of hair coming off of that dog. But this is very much... Okay, not that bad for Miko. But it's very much what she looks like when she's going through a blow. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's so... You can tell why I have an extra heavy-duty vacuum cleaner. That's why. All right. Uh, it's not really a Miko update, but I found this, and I wanted to share it with you tonight. I won't go through everything. I'll just hit a few of them because they're adorable. And uh, like I said, this show tonight is just a mosh of a little bit of everything I found that I thought I'd want to share with you tonight. 14-plus um, powerful reasons why having a Shiba Inu can change your life. And boy, it's true. They are somewhat reminiscent of cats. We've talked about that before. They're very clean. At the same time, the breed demonstrates aggression towards other dogs with might and mane. Not always true. Miko, for example, is great with other people and kids and other dogs and cats. Um, representatives of the breed are greedy. They'll readily fight back those who dare to touch their toys, food, or resting place. Dogs easy to train. That is true. However, also what you heard about them being pig-headed, stubborn, is also very true. If they're in the mood to be trained, they're easy to train. She learned so quickly to sit, shake, high-five, lay down, roll over. Uh... They will, however, only listen to one, maybe two people, if you're in a situation like this. But uh, they are pretty much a one-owner dog. And uh, when a puppy of this breed comes to your home, he will definitely change your life. And here's why. <laughs> Can I be your pillow? If, again, if you're on the podcast, please check out the link in our show notes, because this is an adorable thing from PetReader.net. A uh, bunch of Shiba Inu pillows and one actual Shiba Inu right in the middle. <laughs> uh, you will give me what I want. Boy, if that isn't a face I've seen before a thousand times. Actually, that looks a bit like a younger version of Miko. Uh, what do you mean I'm not a fox? <laughs> we still get folks when we're taking her for a walk who'll say, Oh, look, it's a fox. They do. They look a lot like foxes. Again, I have to put up with all these ads and things here because it's one of those clickbait sites. Um, where's the baby's socks and why are his feet so cold? Do something immediately, woman. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, why so small a portion of yogurt here? I think I'll complain to the producer. <laughs> Miko would do that if we'd let her. She'd stick her nose right in the yogurt cup. Uh, these guys deserve admiration. Indeed, they do. Look at that. What a brilliant face. And you know, when you see a picture of a Sheba like this, you can really tell how closely related they are to wolves. As you know, all domestic dogs uh, descended from wolves. But according to DNA studies, Sheba Inus are the closest to the wolf as far as their DNA goes. So there's a ton of these pictures here. They're all adorable. Even if you don't have a Shiba, you got to check it out because so, every owner knows his Shiba Inu is unique and special. And boy, isn't that the case. <laughs> and finally, oh, there's more, but I'll let you explore. All right, I'll let you touch my belly a little bit. <laughs> and that is a pose that Miko is in... 12 out of 24 hours a day. So check out the link. It's from uh, petreader.net and it's in our uh, it's in our show notes, the description down below on the, the podcast and our video. All right. Uh, we're going to get to our brain dead people in just a minute here, but I saw this on World of Buzz and wanted to share it to you. I have, I think I've talked about this before, but just in case, I'll say it again. 
banking in Malaysia is a freaking nightmare. Having come here from America 20 years ago, this year will be my 20th year in Malaysia, uh, I was one of the few but biggest culture shocks I had was banking. In America, they will kiss your butt six ways to Sunday. They treat you like gods to get you to put your money in their bank. They give you free stuff. Yes, sir. No, sir. How may I assist you? Here in Malaysia, pff, 180 degrees the other way. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Why should I let you do business with my bank? It's just, you know, there's choices. But every bank is the same. They don't give a fat rat's ass for your business. They just don't care. It's unbelievable. Of course, you have to have a bank account. You have to have an ATM card. You have to have a debit card. You don't so much have to have a credit card. I've lived without credit cards for 30 years now. Get along just fine. I pay all my bills online. I use my debit card. But the banks in this country, every one of them, none of you are excused from this, are disgusting the way you treat your customers. It's absolutely abhorrent. If there were an alternative, I'm sure people would flock like crazy to get their money out of your bank and your awful, snotty service. Now, on to the story from World of Buzz, which is kind of funny, actually. But having said that about banks, a Malaysian owes a bank one cent. In Malaysia, our penny, if you're in America, it's called a one cent, C-E-N-T. Here it's a one cent, S-E-N, one cent. Same thing, one penny, one cent. Well, this guy owes the bank one cent and pays one ringgit. But now he has to submit documents to the bank to get his 99-cent refund. <laughs> I mean, he owed one penny on his car loan, basically. Many of us hate going to the bank to settle anything outstanding. It often comes with a lot of documents. And a Malaysian named TZ shared his banking experience on Twitter. Uh, in the tweet, he said, So today I found out I have an outstanding balance of one cent left for my car loan. The bank needs me to pay that one cent before I can proceed with canceling the bank's claim on the car. But he can't make one cent deposit online because it's below the minimum. So the minimum transfer amount is one ringgit, the equivalent of basically a dollar. So he transfers the dollar. He thought about screwing the bank back. Well, now the bank can remove its claim, he tweets, on my car and owes me 99 cents instead. Good luck with processing that, I laughed inside. To his disappointment, the bank told him if he wants his 99 cents back, he has to submit a request and send some documents. And he says in his post, you win, bankers, you always win. <laughs> How to settle the issue? Well, the site, uh, the post, rather, the tweet's gone incredibly viral. Uh, over 15,000 likes, 8,700 shares, and some users offered solutions. Uh, bro, go to the br a branch and steal a pen. Case settled. <laughs> Another user told him, submit and request the necessary documents. Give them a few days, then send them a reminder. And keep repeating that until you get your 99 cents back. The same way the bank would do with you if you owed them money. <laughs> One user explained his wife had overpaid her credit card by 15 cents before canceling the card. And the bank continues to send monthly statements ever since. Gratifying when all it takes is 15 cents to inflict additional costs on the bank. What they're spending to send that statement every month print it, mail it, send it along. It's going to be a lot more than 15 cents, and yet stupidity reigns.
Anyway, it goes on. Check out the link. It's in our show notes tonight. It's from World of Buzz. We love the folks over there at uh, at World of Buzz. <laughs> the cool story, too. And good luck, TZ. I hope you get your 99 cents back. <laughs> Man. All right. Coffee break time. Mm. Hey, by the way, if you'd like one of these, this is a Miko mug. This is our show logo. See? Looks just like that one. And it's got Miko on it. Nice coffee mug or tea or whatever. Uh, you can get it. The link is the top link in our show notes in our description down below. Go over there, check out. We got hats, hoodies, t-shirts, uh, notepads, stickers, mouse pads, and of course, these cool coffee mugs. You can get them at uh, the link down below. Uh, Miko Merch from our show, I'm Not Wearing Pants. Cool. All right, the Daily Mail uh, from the UK uh a lot of people covered this story, but I think this one pretty much explains it best. And that is that uh, when we die, when we die, a lot of people that have died and come back medically uh, have said they see their life flash in front of their eyes. Apparently, that might be true. Check this out. This is the strangest thing from uh, Daily Mail. The link's in our show notes. Our lives really do flash before us. Scientists record brain activity of an 87-year-old man at the moment he passed away. And it revealed a very map rapid memory retrieval process. Researchers recorded brain activity of this 87-year-old as he passed away from a heart attack Brain waves indicated rapid memory retrieval process occurring at the time of death. And the findings suggest that our life may indeed flash before our eyes from this memory retrieval. Now, this is an ad. Don't worry about that. Uh, what happens when we die is a source of mystery, has been for centuries. And a new study, this is the first time they've ever actually been recording when the patient has passed away. Uh, neuroscientists were inadvertently recording this brain. Uh, they were using an EEG to detect and treat seizures in this 87-year-old man. And he suffered a cardiac arrest. Sadly, he passed away. However, he was hooked up to the EEG as that happened. And the first time ever, they had a recording of a human brain dying according to the team. Rhythmic brain patterns were observed to be similar to those occurred during men memory retrieval. They've, you know, they've, they've seen that before when you try and remember something and they record it and they look at the patterns. Um, dreaming, meditation. All that supports the theory known as life recall, that we relive our entire life in the space of seconds, like a flash of lightning just prior to when we die. In fact, the brain may remain active and coordinated during and after the transition to death, may even be programmed to orchestrate the whole ordeal, according to the researchers. This is the electroencephalography it detected and recorded the seizures in this 87-year-old. The patient suffered the heart attack. Uh, EEG output, again, a lot of technical stuff here, but basically they recorded the brain activity and uh, a tremendous amount of activity that happened going into the memory retrieval right at the moment of death. It is absolutely fascinating. EEG method of recording electrical activity of the brain that involves electrodes placed on the scalp and uh, measured 900 seconds of brain activity around the time of death and set a specific focus to investigate what happened in the 30 seconds before and after the heart stopped beating. Just before and after, we saw changes in specific bands of neural oscillations, so-called gamma oscillations, but also in others such as delta, theta, alpha, and beta oscillations. Uh, brainwaves, patterns of rhythmic brain activity normally present in living human brains. Um, 
They're involved in high cognitive functions like concentrating, dreaming, meditation, memory retrieval, information processing. And all those things did this strange spike right at the moment this 87-year-old man sadly passed away. That is, it is fascinating. Maybe it's more interesting to me because I'm closer to death than I am to birth. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that may well be. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but uh, read the article. It's from uh, the Daily Mail in the UK. And it's uh, posted, the link is posted in our, uh, in our show notes tonight. Very, very cool stuff. Very weird. All right. What else we got going on? I promise you a bunch of weird stuff, and I'm delivering. Ranker.com is another totally unrelated to anything we've talked about tonight, but a really cool story. Uh, I saw this earlier this week and wanted to share it on the show tonight. Uh, Preserved for 500 years, the mummies of, I will never pronounce this, it's Incan, so I'm guessing the double L is a Y sound. Yuyayako? Yuyayako? Anyway, you can see it on the screen. Uh, the, the mummies show what Incan child sacrifices entailed. In 1999, three 500 year old mummies were discovered near the peak of this volcano on the Chile-Argentina border. They were children. The oldest known as the Ice Maiden was apparently only 13 years old, experts estimate. The other two were a boy and a girl, and they were about four and five years old. The mummies represent an exciting find for the scientific community, shedding light on the ancient practices of Incan sacrifice. It's likely, it says, that all three died in a ritual called Capacocha, in which they were sacrificed to the sun god. Their bodies were shockingly well-preserved. The freezing thin air in the high mountains turned them into frozen mummies, naturally. Uh, They looked as if they simply fell asleep. And you'll see some of the pictures here. That's actually one of the mummies, and it very much looks as if this uh, girl is not 500 years old, but like she's sleeping. It's amazing. Just shy of the 22,000-foot peak of the mountain, unlike other mummies from around the world, no substances, natural or man-made, used to preserve the bodies. The climate alone Freezing temperatures and extremely dry, thin air kept the tissues intact. Their bodies were essentially just frozen. And uh, look at that. That is absolutely amazing. All three children showed signs of drug and alcohol use. And it's just amazing. Look at that. You can still see the braids in the hair. That is incredible. And the hair went a long way towards revealing the life of these uh, sacrifices. Uh, back in the time of human sacrifices, had uh, the three children most likely had very different roles. Uh, death for the older girl was likely peaceful, but the young boy showed signs of a struggle. And the children basically looked like they were sleeping, which really unnerved the researchers. Again, not going to read through the whole article, but please do check it out. It's fascinating, and the link is in our show notes. That's our description down below the uh, the podcast or the video if you're watching. Um, fascinating from Ranker.com, and uh, 500-year-old mummies that look as if they fell asleep an hour ago. Wow. All right. In our never-ending quest to bring you wacky, weird stuff, and totally unconnected stuff. Do you know why chainsaws were invented? I'll bet you don't. Why were chainsaws invented? Faster way to cut down trees? What do you think? Any idea? Would you believe me if I told you they were initially invented to help with childbirth? 
Yeah, I know. I said the same thing. Believe it or not, they were invented for medical purposes, including childbirth. The chainsaw, if you don't know, is an icon of North America. Chainsaw describes a type of cutting tool powered by an internal combustion engine. Unlike other chainsaws, it has no rigid frame. It can cut through material that isn't straight or flat. It consists of a bar with sharp teeth on an edge attached to a chain that runs around two sprockets at the front and the back of the tool. You gotta know what a chainsaw is, right? If you don't, there's a picture. There's a chainsaw. Is it possible anybody doesn't know what a chainsaw is? Okay. John Aitken and James Jaffrey developed a prototype to assist with various medical practices, including e, the amputation of limbs, removing diseased bones, and cutting flesh that had been infected. Oh, man. <sighs> and how are they related to childbirth, you may ask? Well, you may, and I will answer that question. As horrific and unbelievable as it sounds, chainsaws were in some cases used in childbirth where the baby's shoulders were stuck or the baby's head would not transition in the right manner through the birth canal or in instances of breech birth where the baby is turned around and not coming out head first. Chainsaws in childbirth has been considered for a long time one of the most controversial practices in the medical field. But the use of chainsaws is not necessarily new. Back in the 1800s, it was first introduced, used for cutting parts of the body. First documented case of using a chainsaw to perform surgery was done on a patient with a benign tumor near a knee joint. For all, Now again, when I say chainsaw, I don't mean the you know exactly the chainsaw you would have used to cut down a tree. These were medical chainsaws, so they were produced explicitly for that purpose. They didn't just grab the steel chainsaw off the lumberjack's shelf and go at it. Uh, the technique was used to remove tumors from patients' legs. Eventually, it fell out of favor because of the inherent risks involved, you think. Uh, chainsaws were once again used for surgery when an orthopedic surgeon removed an infected bone fragment on a patient's foot. And because of various safety concerns, uh, they basically fell out of favor. And hey, maybe we shouldn't be using the chainsaw for this. Childbirth saw a use of chainsaws throughout most of the 19th century. It was later replaced during the 20th century with the introduction of the toolbox came into place and C-sections gained popularity. Uh, no longer common practice, well, I would think not, for chainsaws for childbirth. The surgeons would, however, use the chainsaw to cut the uterus open, but this was incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and uh, made childbirth painful. It, again, yeah. Uh, now it's more common, of course, to use a surgical knife and other instruments instead of a chainsaw. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Read the whole article. It's true. The chainsaw was originally invented for childbirth and medical purposes. <laughs> I promised you it was going to be a weird show tonight, and I am delivering in spades. Oh, man. Childbirth. Very nice. <sighs> All right. We got a, just a couple little tiny things that popped in and out on my Facebook feed. I wanted to share them. Um, this is from a page called Reminder. Uh, it was posted by mom, not my mom, uh, the Wild Watsons. Uh, but some really interesting advice. And, and you want to keep this in mind when you text somebody and they don't text you back. If a friend hasn't responded to my text, but I see them active on social media, it's probably because they're overtired, overworked, 
and just taking a well-deserved break to scroll through their social media feed. You are not entitled to someone's downtime. True friends understand that you cannot pour from an empty cup. Very good advice. So even though you may see your friend that you've just text on social media or the little blue tick is active, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to answer you back. They may just be scrolling through and letting their mind wander and taking some personal downtime and a break. All right. And <laughs> one more. It's very quick. But boy, did this hit home. <laughs> There's a bad word in here. I can't say it. It's been slightly crossed out, but you can still see it. Somebody made a tweet says, money will not fix all your problems. To which Orpheus replied, B word, no offense, but money would literally solve every single one of my problems. Like all of them. I don't have a single problem that money wouldn't immediately solve. <laughs> yes! 100%. I love that answer. And seriously, think about it. I'm sure you would say yes, too. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Crazy. <laughs> Uh, we got to move on to our book, don't we? All right. Let me just grab a quick sip of Java. Mmm. The pause that refreshes. You can actually hear me swallow on this microphone. It's a very good microphone. All right. <laughs> it's time. As you know, we read books on this show. And we've been doing Tom Sawyer uh, for the last many. This is a long book. We're at chapter 21 uh, tonight. Uh, there's a, a lot more to go, but it's cool. It's such an amazing book. It wasn't Mark Twain's most popular book. Uh, this he wrote first. It was one of the first novels ever written on a typewriter, by the way. A little bit of trivia for you, if you didn't know. But after this, he then wrote The Adventures of Huck Finn, Huck Finn was a huge hit for Mark Twain. And then after that, only then, did The Adventures of Tom Sawyer become popular because of the success of his second book, uh, Huckleberry Finn, which we're thinking we might move on to Huckleberry Finn once we get done with Tom Sawyer because this has been a lot of fun to read. Um, I will, however, give you this warning. I always do this with this particular book. It was written in 1876 by Mark Twain. Note that some of the words in this book, while they were appropriate in 1876, are not so much appropriate today. And yes, that includes the N-word. Uh, we are reading exactly the words that Mark Twain wrote in 1876, including the N-word. If that offends you, you may want to find something else to do for the next 15 minutes or so. But uh, having said that, you've been warned. <laughs> All right. Let us move on and up to chapter 21 of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Vacation was approaching. The schoolmaster, always severe, grew severer and more extracting than ever, for he wanted the school to make a good showing on examination day. His rod and his ferrule was seldom idle now, at least among the smaller pupils. Only the biggest boys and young ladies of eighteen and twenty escaped lashing. Mr. Dobbins' lashings were very vigorous ones, too, for although he carried under his wig a perfectly bald and shiny head, he had only reached middle age. There was no sign of feebleness in his muscle. As the great day approached, all the tyranny that was in him 
came to the surface. He seemed to take a vindictive pleasure in punishing the least shortcomings. The consequence was that the smaller boys spent their days in terror and suffering and their nights in plotting revenge. They threw away no opportunity to do the master a mischief. But then he kept ahead of all the time. The retribution that followed every vengeful success was so sweeping and majestic that the boys always retired from the field badly worsted. At last, they conspired together and hit upon a plan that promised a dazzling victory. They swore in the sign painter's boy, told him the scheme, and asked for his help. He had his own reasons for being delighted, for the master boarded in his father's family and had given the boy ample cause to hate him. The master's wife would go on a visit to the country in a few days, and there would be nothing to interfere with the plan. The master always prepared himself for great occasions by getting pretty well fuddled, and the sign-painter's boy said that when the dominie had reached the proper condition on examination evening, he would manage the thing while he napped in his chair, and then he would have him awakened at the right time and hurried away to school. In the fullness of time, the interesting occasion arrived. At eight in the evening at the schoolhouse, brilliantly lighted and adorned with wreaths and festoons of foliage and flowers, the master sat throned in his great chair upon a raised platform with his blackboard behind him. He was looking tolerably mellow. Three rows of benches on each side, six rows in front of him, were occupied by the dignitaries of the town and by the parents of the pupils. To the left, back of the rows of citizens, was a spacious temporary platform upon which were seated the scholars who were to take part in the exercises of the evening. Rows of small boys, washed and dressed to an intolerable state of discomfort. Rows of gawking big boys, snowbanks of girls and young ladies clad in lawn and muslin and conspicuously conscious of their bare arms, their grandmother's ancient trinkets, their bits of pink and blue ribbon and flowers in their hair. All the rest of the house was filled with non-participating scholars. The exercises began. A very little boy stood up and sheepishly recited, You'd scarce expect one of my age to speak in public on the stage, etc., accompanying himself with the painfully exact and spasmodic gestures with a machine might have used, supposing the machine to be a trifle out of order. But he got through safely, though cruelly scared, and got a fine round of applause when he made his manufactured bow and retired. A little shamefaced girl lisped, Mary had a little lamb, etc., performed a compassion-inspired curtsy, got her meat of applause, and sat down flushed and happy. Tom Sawyer stepped forward with conceited confidence and soared into the unquenchable and indestructible Give me liberty or give me death speech with fine fury and frantic gesticulation and broke down in the middle of it. A ghastly stage fright seized him. His legs quaked under him, and he was like to choke. True, he had the manifest sympathy of the house, but he had the house's silence, too, which was even worse than its sympathy. The master frowned and then completed the disaster. Tom struggled a while and then retired, utterly defeated. There was a weak attempt at applause, but it died early. The boys stood on the burning deck, followed. Also, the Assyrian came down, and other declamatory gems. And Then there were reading exercises and a spelling fight. 
The meager Latin class recited with honor. The prime feature of the evening was, in order now, original compositions by the young ladies. Each in their turn stepped forward to the edge of the platform, cleared her throat, <clears throat> held up her manuscript tied with dainty ribbon, and proceeded to read with labored attention to expression and punctuation. The themes were the same that had been illuminated upon similar occasions by their mothers before them. Their grandmothers, and doubtless all their ancestors in the female line, clear back to the Crusades. Friendship was one. Memories of other days. Religion and history. Dreamland. The adventures of culture. Forms of political government compared and contrasted. Melancholy, filial love, heart longings, etc., etc. A prevalent feature in these compositions was a nursed and petted melancholy. Another was a wasteful and opulent gust of fine language. Another a tendency to lug in by the ears particularly prized words and phrases until they were entirely worn out and a peculiarity that conspicuously marked and marred them was the inveterate and intolerable sermon that wagged its crippled tail at the end of each and every one of them. No matter what the subject might be, a brain-wracking effort was made to squirm it into some aspect or another of the moral and religious mind could contemplate with edification. The glaring insincerity of these sermons was not sufficient to compass the banishment of the fashion from the schools, and it is not sufficient today. It never will be sufficient while the world stands, perhaps. There is no school in all our land where the young ladies do not feel obliged to close their compositions with a sermon and you'll find the sermon of the most frivolous and the least religious girl in the school is always the longest and the most relentlessly pious. But enough of this. Homely truth is unpalatable. Let us return to the examination. The first composition was read entitled, Is This Then life? Perhaps the reader can extrude an extract from it. In the common walks of life, with what delightful emotions does the youthful mind look forward to some anticipated scene of festivity? Imagination is busy sketching rose-tinted pictures of joy. In fancy, the voluptuous voluntary of fashion sees herself amid the festive throng. The observed of all observers— her graceful form, arrayed in snowy robes, is whirling through the maze of the joyous dance. Her eye is brightest, her step is lightest in the gay assembly. In such delicious fancy times, quickly glides by, and the welcome hour arrives for her entrance into the Elysian world of which she has had such bright dreams. How fairy-like does everything appear to her enchanted vision? Each new scene is more charming than the last. But after a while, she finds that beneath this goodly exterior, all is vanity. The flattery which was once charmed her soul now grates harshly upon her ear. The ballroom has lost its charm. And with wasted health and an embittered heart, she turns away with the conviction that earthly pleasures cannot satisfy the longings of the soul. And so forth and so on. There was a buzz of gratification from time to time during the reading, accompanied by whispered ejaculations of how sweet, how eloquent, so true, etc. And after the thing had closed with a peculiarity, afflicted sermon, the applause was enthusiastic. Then rose a slim melancholy girl, whose face had the interesting paleness that comes of pills and indigestion, and read a poem. Two stanzas of it will do. 
A Missouri Maiden's Farewell to Alabama. Alabama, goodbye, I love thee well, but yet for a while I do leave thee now. Sad, yes, said sad thoughts of thee my heart doth swell, and burning recollections throng my brow, for I have wandered through the flowery woods, have roamed and bred near Tappaloosa's stream, have listened to Tallahassee's warring floods, and wooed on Coosa's side Aurora's beam. Yet shall I not bear an o'erfull heart, nor blush to turn behind my tearful eyes. Tis from no stranger land I must now part. Tis to no strangers left I yield these sighs. Welcome and home were mine within this state, whose veils I leave, whose spires fade fast from me. And cold must be mine eyes and heart and teat when Alabama they turn cold on thee. Now there were very few who knew what teat meant, but the poem was very satisfactory nonetheless. Next appeared a dark complexed, black eyed, black haired young lady, who paused an impressive moment, assumed a tragic expression, and began to read in a measured Solemn tone. A vision. Dark and temptuous was night. Around the throne on high not a single star quivered, but the deep intonations of the heavy thunder constantly vibrated upon the ear. Whilst the terrific lightning reveled in angry mood through the cloudy chamber of heaven, seemed to scorn the power exerted over its terror by the illustrious Franklin. Even the boisterous winds unanimously came forth from their mystic homes, and blustered about as if to enhance by their aid the wildness of the scene. At such a time so dark, so dreary, for human sympathy my very spirit sighed, but instead thereof. My dearest friend, my counselor, my comforter, my guide, my joy and grief, my second bliss and joy, came to my side. She moved like one of those bright beings pictured in the sunny walks of fancy Edens by the romantic and young, a queen of beauty unadorned save by her own transcendent loveliness. So soft was her step, it failed to even make a sound, and but for the magical thrill imparted by her genial touch, as other unobtrusive beauties she would have glided away unperceived, unsought. A strange sadness rested upon her features, like icy tears upon the robe of December, as she pointed to the contending elements without, and bade me contemplate the two beings presented. Now, this nightmare occupied some ten pages of manuscript and wound up with a sermon so destructive of all hope to non-Presbyterians that it took the first prize. This composition was considered to be the very finest effort of the evening. The mayor of the village, in delivering the prize to the author of it, made a warm speech in which he said that it was by far the most eloquent thing he'd ever listened to, and that Daniel Webster himself might well be proud of it. It may be remarked in passing that the number of compositions in which the word beauteous was overfondled and human experience referred to as life's page was up to the usual average. Now the master, mellow almost to the verge of geniality, put his chair aside, turned his back to the audience, and began to draw a map of America on the blackboard to exercise the geography class upon. But he made a sad business of it with his unsteady hand, and a smothered titter rippled over the house. He knew what the matter was and set himself to write it. He sponged out lines and remade them, but then only distorted them more than ever, and the tittering was more pronounced. 
he threw his entire attention upon his work. Now, as if determined not to be put down by the mirth, he felt that all eyes were fasted upon him. He imagined he was succeeding, and yet the tittering continued. It even manifestly increased, and well it might. There was a garret above, pierced with a scuttle over his head, and down through this scuttle came a cat, suspended around the haunches by a string. She had a rag tied around her head and jaws to keep her from meowing. As she slowly descended, she curved upward and clawed at the string. She swung downward and clawed at the intangible air. The tittering rose higher and higher. The cat was within six inches of the absorbed teacher's head, down, down a little lower, and she grabbed his wig with her desperate claws, clung to it, and was snatched up into the garret in an instant with her trophy still in her possession. And how the light did blaze abroad from the master's bald pat, for the sign-painter's boy had gilded it. That broke up the meeting. The boys were avenged. Vacation had come. Note, the pretended compositions quoted in this chapter are taken without alteration from a volume entitled Prose and Poetry by a Western Lady, but they are exactly and precisely after the schoolgirl pattern, and hence are much happier than any mere imitations could ever be. <laughs> That's chapter 21. That's a long one, I warned you. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. All right. That's cool. Thank you. Uh, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. I'll see you again on uh, on Monday night, and we will uh, find some more stuff to talk about and update you on Miko and let you know what's happening in life here in Malaysia. Until then, I am Jay Sheldon. Thanks for listening and watching. I'm not wearing pants. Good night. <laughs> Snort. <laughs>